Hey there, yellow chicken nuggets. It's me, Carl. Welcome to camp, or retreat, or whatever you call it. I just have a couple rules to go over with you guys. Well, just one rule. Rule number one, have fun, and that's it. Just having fun at camp. There are no rules. Well, I mean, just the one rule, having fun. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to What's the Wi-Fi Password? The message you're about to listen to is from our 2020 high school winter camp at Mount Hermon. This was an awesome weekend full of shenanigans, teachings, and community with other churches across California. Hope you enjoyed. It's great to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Austin. I'm the youth pastor over at Refuge Church in Salinas. Yeah. Formerly of Calvary Monterey. I don't know if that means anything, but hopefully. Um, last night, you guys got to hear a good word from Matt Gersandi, our senior pastor, about Jesus as our good shepherd. Um, today, I'm here to give witness to you guys and attest to the truth that Jesus is the light of the world. And so this morning, I wanted to start off by telling an honest confession to you guys. Can I tell that to you guys? Yeah? Is this a safe place to confess? All right. When I was a little kid, I had really bad nyctophobia. You know what that is? No? Okay. It's actually really lame. You're going to find out. It's a fancy term for saying, I was afraid of the dark. I just wanted it to sound more sophisticated and less wimpy. You get that? So, anyone else struggled with that as a kid? Anyone brave enough to admit that? Anyone still struggle with that? <laughs> All right. So, you guys, from what I remember, my mom actually tried several different things. We tried the nightlights. We tried leaving the door ajar. But the best and the coolest solution came when she got these little neon green glow-in-the-dark stars. And I remember we put them up on the ceiling and made these little constellations and arrangements. And you know what happened? Is I would look up at those stars and they're just so mesmerizing and they capture your mind and before you know it, boom, you're asleep. So as I was thinking back on this, I wondered to myself, why do we as humans why do we get afraid of the dark? See, most often, it's because on the surface, what we perceive as darkness is actually not the problem. It's what the darkness may mask or hold within it. That's our real fear. And so it's like your mind creates this whole other reality. What if there's a monster under there? What if there's a hand that reaches out and grabs my foot as I'm getting into bed? I still have that fear kind of subconsciously. Anyone else? Yeah? Okay, cool. Um, so, but often, when that light comes on, when the switch is turned, reality and the truth is, is restored. That's not the boogeyman. That's just my Star Wars Jedi bathrobe sitting on the chair. Often the reality behind darkness is something ridiculous and erroneous and something just empty and not worth believing in the end. And so when it comes to Jesus, we actually see something similar at play. In John 8, 12, he makes a statement saying, I am the light of the world. And as the light of the world, this is what he does. He reveals the truth of reality, the reality of sin, the reality of human darkness and our fallen nature, the reality of himself, but not just that. He also invites us to know something. He invites us to know the truth of his gospel, and he invites us to follow him and have life in him. And for those of you guys taking notes, there are three main things pertaining to this I am statement that we're looking at today. So here you go. Number one is the meaning. The meaning. What does Jesus actually mean when he presents himself as the light of the world? Number two, the opposition, the opposition, a.k.a. darkness, a.k.a. the dark side, the pathway to abilities many consider to be unnatural, like getting written back into the plot of a movie after supposedly being dead for the previous two, but I'm not going to go there, you know, 
seen The Rise of Skywalker. For anyone who hasn't seen that, sorry. Um, But in all seriousness, wherever you have light, there is darkness as well. There's that contrast. It's an unfortunate reality, but the contrast actually helps us to understand the light better. And number three, number three, the invitation. Our I am statement this morning comes with a promise attached. And this promise serves as an invitation out of darkness and into his light. We'll get a sneak preview at this promise as we look at verse 12, but we're also gonna come back to that and circle back at the end. And so, in looking at the meaning of, the opposition to, and the promise from, the light of the world, we'll see the message of the gospel and its implications laid out. But first, would you guys pray with me? Father, We are thankful that you are a God of love and mercy, that you saw our condition, the condition of mankind and all of the darkness that has unfolded throughout our history. We thank you that you chose to do something, that you sent your son Jesus, the light of the world, to live and minister here on earth and then to die for our sins. Thank you for his resurrection and the opportunity to experience newness of life in him. We pray that your word would be a lamp unto our feet, that it would guide our way. We ask that the unfolding of your word would illuminate our minds, giving us perspective and clarity and understanding the truth of who you are. We ask you to move here in our hearts by the power of your spirit. We ask and pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you haven't turned there already, would you guys please turn to uh, John eight twelve. So before we actually begin getting into the scripture, I want to give you guys some context here. It's going to help you understand what's going on. Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem during a celebration called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this gathering was held in order to commemorate God leading Moses and the ancient Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years. One particular aspect of this journey that they celebrated was light, light. Now, why did they do that? Well, in the book of Exodus, it says that God led the people in the form of a cloud by day and then what by night? Fire, yeah, epic pillar of fire. So God, in a very literal sense, was their light. They didn't have an iPhone flashlight to whip out from their back pocket, no lanterns, nothing like that. So to symbolize God being a light in the darkness, this is what they did. They set up these four giant towers in one of the temple courtyards. And I want you to imagine a giant courtyard of stone, roughly in the shape of a square, and in each corner of this square, there was a 75-foot-tall stone tower with a wick at the top. These are like giant tiki torches. And so every night during this celebration, some brave soul, not me, would go up there on a ladder and light the wick. And the temple would glow radiantly at night, shine bright like a diamond. It's not a reference to Rihanna at all. Um, I also want to point out that this courtyard was a public place for the Jewish people. It included the treasury, which was a place where people could go and drop off their offerings, their taxes for the temple. And the reason I'm giving you guys all these details about this courtyard, these giant tiki torches, and the fact that this is a public place is because Jesus is a master of the moment. He's a master of the moment. He goes for maximum impact. It's here in this courtyard during the height of the celebration of light in a public place with a lot of people that he decides to drop an atomic truth bomb of a statement. Now, unfortunately, Jesus has some haters in the house, the house of God. These people were the Pharisees. See, they were the Jewish religious leaders of that time. They're the kids that ace the tests and make you feel bad for getting an A minus and point out all the ways that you could have done better. Did you just love that? These Pharisees were not thrilled with Jesus. Why? You see, Jesus had pointed out much of their hypocrisy. He challenged many of their pointless rules and regulations that they attacked onto the actual commandment of God. And as the Son of God, he outranked them in authority, and this drove them bonkers. 
And so Jesus speaks to them and the bystanders in the temple starting in verse 12. Would you guys read with me? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right, so first I wanna break it down. What does Jesus mean when he says, I am the light of the world? Take a look at the first two words. I am, it's the name of our camp theme. It's a phrase that God used when revealing himself to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus. It denotes that God has always been, he always is and always will be an ever-present reality, an ever-present reality. He is not constrained by time nor by space. The next word, it's a beautiful word we all use every day, the. But notice that in this context, Jesus does not say, I am a light of the world. I'm not one light in the world. He says, I am the light of the world, singular, as if to say, apart from me, there is no other true light. And then you've got light. That's often symbolic for the presence of God or the concept of the truth. And lastly, we see here in this statement, he says, the world. He's communicating that he's not just a light to the people of Israel or to just a certain group of people, but he's a light to the whole world. He is all-encompassing, reaching far and wide, shining into the darkest of places. And so we put all of this together, put all of those things together, and we see that Jesus is saying, when he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am an ever-present, eternal, all-encompassing, far-reaching source of truth, and there is no one else who can compare to me. This is a claim to divinity. Jesus is saying, I am God. This celebration of light that you're holding here, it's about me. I'm the Messiah. I am the one who saves people from the darkness and bondage of sin. Can I get an amen? Amen. And Jesus, after throwing down his identity statement, he issues a promise. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So who does Jesus give his light to? Anyone. Anyone who is willing to follow him. Now that phrase, follow him, this is rabbinic language. To follow Jesus is to make him your rabbi, your teacher, the source of your truth. Jesus makes it very plain and clear that this promise stands to anyone, to you, to me, to the rest of humanity, whoever would believe in him. But he also makes something else very clear with his words. If you guys have a pen or pencil, I want you to underline these two words in your Bible. The words, follows me, follows me. Notice the verb tense in that. It's not followed, like past tense, it's follows. It implies something continual and active and ongoing. It's not like, oh, I followed Jesus when I said this prayer when I was 10, or I followed Jesus at Ponderosa Winter Camp 2020. It follows Jesus, continual, ongoing, active, a lifetime spent pursuing Jesus. And for those who would do so, it says and implies that they would forsake the darkness, not walk in it, and would have the light of life. Now what is that, the light of life? What does that mean? This means he is the light that gives life, but it also means he is the light that leads to life, everlasting life in him. And so, now that we have a better understanding of this I am statement and the promise, we're gonna take a look at the opposition. See, when Jesus drops this truth statement, Those haters, they're triggered. (laughs) So what happens is Jesus, he gets interrupted. He gets interrupted. Verse 12 is actually the last time that we see light mentioned, the word light specifically mentioned. But make no mistake, his light here in this dialogue is actually doing something. You see, through this dialogue with the Pharisees, Jesus, as the light of the world, is going to reveal something. He's going to reveal the darkness within the Pharisees, 
but also within humanity. That darkness is common to all of us because of our sin nature. So what I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna take the dialogue of verses 13 through 29. I know it's a lot. I know it's a big chunk. Looks like a lot. It's actually an easy read, though, since it's a conversation. And so I'm gonna do kind of a rolling commentary as we go, too. And so would you guys start with me in verse 13? So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're hanging their disbelief on a technicality from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, that says to verify something is true, you need two witnesses. And so Jesus answered, verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. He's like, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? You know nothing about me. In verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. You only have part of the picture about me, but you want to jump to conclusions. In verse 16, yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Pause right there for a second. Don't make any mistakes. This is actually an insult. This is a diss. They're trying to low blow Jesus right here. See, they didn't believe Jesus had been born of a virgin or by the Holy Spirit. They assumed that his mother Mary had committed sexual sin and that Jesus was the result. In essence, they're asking, well, who's your daddy? And so Jesus, with the comeback of the millennium, fires back with, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Oof. Oof. You guys ever have those moments at school where like two people are just going at it? Like it's either a debate or an argument or something and then somebody like lands like a really profound like comment or like a diss and everyone's just like, oh, like that's what this part of the dialogue is here. That's what, how I imagine it. So the Jews in verse 22 in their lack of understanding said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, he being the light of the world, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? They still don't get it. Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you, and I have much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, sorry, I lost my place here. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, he's speaking of his crucifixion, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So I know that was a lot of text, it was a lot of dialogue. Thanks for hanging in there, you guys. Um, let me tell you what's happened here. In this temple courtyard, illuminated by these giant tiki torch towers, the Pharisees try to convict Jesus of guilt in front of everybody, but this backfires miserably. Jesus uses this interruption, he uses this detour to reveal the darkness of their hearts. Now we gotta ask, what is darkness in a spiritual sense? The answer is actually found in verse 13. It's summed up in five words said by the Pharisees. Your testimony is not true. For all of you taking notes, write this down. Spiritual darkness is denying or opposing the truth of who Jesus is denying or opposing the truth of who Jesus is. 
And so the denial or the opposition to the truth of Jesus and his testimony, there are some realities. I think an amp just went out. All right, cool. (laughs) Speaking of interruptions. um, What are the realities behind darkness? There are a couple that we see here in this dialogue. One's found in verse 15. Look at this. You judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one. To judge according to the flesh means to judge based on appearances, to judge based on circumstances, to simply misjudge, per se. And the Pharisees have misjudged Jesus severely. Also in verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Another reality behind darkness is failing to know the father. More specifically, failing to have a relationship with him. It's one thing to know about God. You see, the Pharisees knew a lot about God. They knew a lot about the commandments. But they did not know God in the sense that they had a relationship with him. And so there's a real tragic consequence to that. It's in verse 24. Unless you believe that I am he, the light of the world, you will die in your sins. He's saying, if you choose this path, if you deny who I really am, because you have misjudged me, because you don't know the Father, you will spend the rest of eternity separated from me in a place that Jesus refers to in the Gospels as the outer darkness. There is no light there. You see, hell is a reality. Hell is a reality where you discover that the person that you need is the person that you cannot find, the light of the world. It's a place that God doesn't send people to. It's a place that people choose. People choose hell. And so, the Pharisees, it's really unfortunate, they would not understand any of this until it was too late, until they had crucified the Son of Man. And now before we begin to to think in our hearts, well, how could they? I would never. We need to realize that their darkness It's actually our darkness. It's actually the darkness that encapsulates all of humanity. You see, darkness is manifested, it's expressed in many different ways. But it all comes back to the same realities, the realities of misjudging Christ and failing to know the Father. And so, here are some examples. Some people fail to know God and that he provides intimacy and closeness And so they seek it out through other means, relationships, sex, pornography. Some people fail to know God, that he gives security and protection. And so they live their lives in fear, constantly afraid. Some people fail to know God and that he provides an identity and that he brings you into a family. So they live their lives not knowing what they're worth thinking they're unloved, perhaps depressed and destitute, not knowing who they really are. You see, as humanity, we may not trip and stumble over the same things, you and I, but we have this in common. We do stumble in the darkness. And so, this is why we need a light. This is why we need a light. This is why we need an invitation out of the darkness. Some of you guys in this room may ask, well, why does it have to be Jesus? Why does this invitation have to come from Jesus specifically, him and him alone? It is because darkness is pervasive. It runs too deep. It is too widespread. It crosses too many boundaries for any single human philosophy or idea to try to remediate and cover up and treat. It takes a light from above one that's not of this world. And to demonstrate all of this, I wanna tell you a story. It's about a family lineage engulfed and consumed in darkness. Just one family across four generations. Darkness in both actions and sins, but also darkness in what they believed about themselves and Jesus. It begins with a man named Cheung. The year is 1944. Japan has conquered Korea and has implemented an oppressive regime. Cheung 
lived a very hard life. He was dirt poor. The only thing keeping his family alive was a garden with a few small tomato plants. His father had been sentenced to prison for being a pastor and for writing articles about the gospel and spreading the hope of Jesus Christ. One day, Cheung receives tragic news that his father has died of typhus fever while serving out his sentence. It's here that he begins down the path of darkness. And what was that exactly? You see, Cheung rejected faith based on his circumstances. He judged based on appearances. He misjudged Christ because of the circumstances in front of him. He viewed faith as something that had simply led to his father's death. He did not see the hope that he brought. He did not see all of the lives that had been changed by his work as a pastor. He only saw part of the picture and he jumped to conclusions. And so denying the testimony of Christ's lordship, Cheung set out to be the master of his own fate. And here's what happened. He grew up, he moved to America, he started a family and began a business. But after some number of years, there came a time when his business failed, it tanked. And unable to accept the weight of his failure, he turned to alcohol for refuge, to numb his pain. And so he came home drunk often. He beat his wife and his children, his favorite instrument of torture being a wooden baseball bat they kept in the garage. His youngest son, son Myung, he spent a great deal of his early childhood in fear and trauma. And one day as Myung came home from school, he peered into the garage, their family garage, and he found his father hanging from the ceiling. You see, unable to cope with the weight of his failure, Cheung had died in his sin, quite literally. The story doesn't end there. You see, darkness is pervasive. It's carried through generations. It ingrains itself in the heart. And so with those wounds, Myung lived with that darkness deep inside him. For many years, things appeared normal. He even started a family, they even went to church for a time, but he lacked a true faith. He simply thought going to church was the right thing to do. That can't be our true reason, just because we think it's a right thing to do. Eventually, he became disillusioned. Christians, he thought, were so hypocritical. They failed to measure up to the love and to the compassion of their savior. They were weak. And so Mayung had misjudged a perfect savior based on an imperfect church. It's an unfortunate reality, we see a lot. And without Christ to help heal the wounds of his past, to help remediate his misunderstanding, Mayung repeated the same darkness and the same manner of sin as his father before him. He fought with his wife constantly. He threatened to leave her. He berated his kids. He was physically violent towards them. His daughter, Young, he kicked down a flight of stairs when she was just three years old. And his son, Jin, become familiar with the feeling of being hit, strangled, thrown against the wall and the floor throughout his childhood. And so Jin believed in God from an early age. He actually believed. This is something. But in this household of violence, of darkness, his concept of God had become so blurred severely distorted, believing God to be an angry, strict, and wrathful master, rather, rather than compassionate and loving. You see, the darkness made him conclude something, that God did not love him, that he was okay leaving him to suffer. I think there are some of you guys in this room who feel that way too, that God does not love you. God loved me. Why would I be going through this? Why would he allow this? You see, like Jin, People fail to know the Father truly. They can't see that God loves them and that he loves them so much that he actually has a plan in place to end suffering for all time. How did he do that? He sent the suffering servant, his son Jesus Christ, to die upon a Roman cross for the sins of mankind, to suffer. He was called a man of sorrows. He was a man of grief. He bore the weight of darkness and sin from the dawn of time to the end of days. All at Calvary. So one night, Mayung and his wife, they get into a fight. 
Jin could hear the screams through the walls from the next room over. And reaching a breaking point, he slipped out of his room into a dark hallway, and he walked to the kitchen. And at nine years old, he did something. You see, at nine years old, he had grown just tall enough to reach over the kitchen counter. And so taking one of the knives from the kitchen block, he walked back to his room. He was scared to do it. He wondered how much it would hurt. He wondered how deep he would have to go to get to the artery in his arm. But those thoughts were interrupted. They were interrupted by the creaking of a bedroom door. You see, his sister, young, frightened from the commotion, had crept into his room so that they could be together. She looked at him, she, she saw the knife in his hand. At the age of seven, she was smart enough to put the picture together. And she buried her face into his side and just cried. And when she had regained the ability to speak coherently, she said, if you do it, I'll be all alone. Who will take care of me? Her pain had caused tremendous regret in his heart. Jin could not bear to look at her. All he could do was stare down at the floor and he could see her tears rolling down his arm. All of it made visible by the luminescent constellations of small neon green stars scattered across the ceiling. He knew things had to be different for her, for him. He knew there had to be a way out. And so he went back and put the knife away. And afterwards, I came back to that room and I held her until she fell asleep. Darkness is pervasive. It knows no bounds. Jin was the name that my grandmother gave me. It's a name that connects me to my heritage. It's a name that connects me to my past. It is a name that connects me to so much pain and darkness and a whole slew of things that God did not intend for humanity. Nations conquer nations. Fathers beat their children. People turn to alcohol to numb their pain. Children suffer and contemplate suicide. You see, darkness does not limit itself to a certain people group. It does not discriminate based on age or gender or culture. It perpetuates itself throughout generations and family lines. It's expressed in countless different ways. The scope and the magnitude of the darkness would seem limitless. What could stand against such a darkness? It takes a light, but not just any light. It takes the light. It takes light ever present, light all encompassing, far reaching, eternal. It takes Jesus, the one who comes to a broken and dying world, the one who saves people from their sins, who calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who said through his word, I am the light of the world and I break every stronghold every chain and every generational curse. I am the light of the world and I bring darkness to its knees. And no matter what you have walked through, no matter what you have done, no matter what the darkness has robbed from you, this promise stands that whoever would follow me would not walk in darkness but would have the light of life the promise that shined in the darkness there in that temple courtyard. It's the same promise that shines upon our hearts today. It's the same promise that came into my life. You see, seven years after that night, after almost making the worst decision of my life at a youth camp, my sister and I took that invitation together. We walked out of that darkness the darkness of our sin, the darkness of our past, and the darkness also of what we believed about ourselves. The same invitation comes to you all. So how does this invitation work? I told you there was an invitation. 
this promise functions as an invitation. We have to go back to the temple courtyard for a second. Let's close our time by reading in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. These are the bystanders, the people who were just watching this dialogue take place. If you read the story all the way to the end, it's implied that some people took this invitation, but many likely did not. They accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. They got his origin story all wrong, and they even pick up stones to throw at him, to kill him with. But to those who would accept the invitation, here's how it works. It all starts with belief. It starts with belief. Believing that there was a God in heaven who created you, who loves you, who longs to know you deeply and intimately. A God who sent his son to die for your sins upon a cross. But the invitation of Jesus, here's the thing, it actually invites us to something even deeper than just belief. I think that there are a lot of you guys in this room who believe but have yet to follow. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus? I told you that was rabbinic language, that you have to make Jesus your rabbi, the source of your truth. And so in verse 31, check this out. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There are many illustrations to depict abiding in Jesus, staying put, not crossing a line, but my favorite illustration of abiding in Jesus is this. Jesus is your home. He's your home. He's the place of security. He's the place of comfort. He's the place of identity where you can be you to the truest sense. He is your home. To abide in Jesus is to keep coming back to that place, to keep coming back to home base, to that truth. And so for me, this looked like a lot of things. It looked like repentance for the sins I had committed. Pornography, stealing alcohol, from liquor stores, lighting up in public parks. There's so many things that were brought out of my darkness. Those are just some examples. But here's the thing also, abiding, coming back to that place of knowing who you really are. I said it looks like a lot of different things. It also looks like forgiveness. You see, to abide in the truth of Jesus is to abide in a God who forgave the sins of the entire world, and to abide in that requires that we forgive. So what that looks like for me is going to the Monterey Bay Aquarium with my dad and looking at all of the strange, ugly fish and asking, does God have a sense of humor or is this evidence of the fall? <laughs> That's what it is. It looks like sitting down for sushi with him and getting to know him, it looks like letting him be there for me after everything that has transpired. And why is that? You see, to abide in Jesus is to be a disciple. It's to be a follower. To abide in Jesus is the real deal. I think that's what some of you guys are looking for today. Some of you guys believe, but you're looking for the real deal. What's it all about? It's abiding in Jesus. And so, somebody was praying this morning during our leaders meeting, and one of the most powerful things that we can do as leaders is we can give you examples, examples of walking forward in freedom, examples of shining light into the darkness, examples of abiding and coming back to home base, coming back to the truth. And so to do that, I wanted to invite a special friend up to this stage. She's somebody who has exemplified this so well in the last couple of years. Her name is Tate. You guys welcome her up. So Tate, here's what I wanna do. I wanna ask you a couple of questions pertaining to this concept of abiding in Jesus, being a true disciple. 
and then being set free by the truth. So can you tell us a little bit about the season that you have walked through in the last couple of years, the darkness that you have had to face? Yes. Uh, Okay, so um, I went to Bible college and after high school and I met my best friend there and we got married about a year later. And um, as soon as we got married, I just call it the year of hell. Everything that could go wrong, that could happen in your life, um, happened to me. We were in a car accident, and I got um, my car totaled and had some injuries uh, a week after we got married. And so all of a sudden, we we started our marriage with no debt, and then I had a bunch of debt. Um, My grandma passed away, who I was extremely close to. She was one of my best friends. My parents moved away. Um, I was in ministry, so I was struggling to be happy every Sunday while going through so much pain and depression. Um, I ended up getting pregnant and um, miscarrying. And then, um, yeah, my husband just made some really poor choices directly um, correlated to pornography and that whole world, so I'll just let you imagine to where that led to, but he ended up leaving me a year after we were married. Um, So it almost felt like, you know, I went to Bible college and I gave my life to the Lord, fully committed to him, started serving full-time in the church, and my life just kept getting harder and harder, not any easier. (laughs) Even though I was making better choices personally, everything in my life kept falling apart, and... Um, I just lost all my hopes and dreams when my husband left on a plane and left me with a lot of debt, alone, and completely broken because the love that I had given so freely and so deeply was just completely rejected. And also, like Austin with his story, it was generational. His grandpa had done that to his grandma, and his dad had done that to his mom. And so, um, you know, that's all tied to sexual addiction and pornography and it has affected my life and my friend's life and now my family's life, my parents and it's caused um, it caused me to feel like I couldn't trust anybody because I didn't know if people were actually being real and honest with me because um, it was such a deep betrayal and uh, trust and divorce is like a great grief it feels like a huge failure on my part like what did I do Um, why wasn't I good enough but and growing up in the church you know you hear that no matter what God is going to restore your marriage um, that divorce is not an option right if you pray enough if you have enough faith that redemption looks like God restoring your marriage and so I held out for over a year and I prayed and fasted I was on my hands and knees every day just begging God for an answer Um, begging God to bring my husband back to to salvation, to clarity, to repentance, to me. Um, but that didn't happen. And what I really learned is that God's grace looked like letting go, right? Letting go of that idea of marriage and of a relationship and of a dream of a family and just trusting God to take care of me and trusting God to be my husband. But um, so I, I ended up filing for divorce, which it is biblical. I just want to be clear that um, for the unbelieving spouse, or for for you, if your hus- if your spouse is unfaithful, you do have grounds for divorce. Um, that's in First Corinthians. But I'm not. None of you should be getting divorces because you're not married. So we don't need to go into that. But if you have questions about that, I'm happy to talk to you about that after. Yeah. And so Tate, another question I want to ask mm-hmm. you is we looked at the reality of spiritual darkness and we saw that like darkness can be sin that you have committed sin that has been done unto you it can also be stuff that we believe about ourselves what were you tempted to believe about yourself in that season i know that there are a lot of people in this room that probably have misconceptions about who they are yeah i believed that i wasn't enough right that i was either too much not enough for him for god i believe that god Um, I felt really close to God, right? Like my spirit kept going, but
but I felt so far from him. Like I didn't even know who he was. My, my idea of love and marriage was being so challenged. So my idea of God was being challenged, right? If God loved me, why would this happen? If I gave my life to him, if I was serving him, why were things getting harder, not easier? I, I just had such misconceptions of, um, understanding like things that the we just grow up in church believing like life should look like this after high school right life should look like going to college it should look like getting married it should look like having a successful marriage but that's just not what god those aren't promises of god right god doesn't promise you college he doesn't promise you marriage or anything like that and so um but he does ask for obedience right? He does ask for obedience. And so the most obedient thing for me um, in this season is to just walk closely to him. So I felt like I wasn't enough. I felt like I uh, had no love. I felt like um, my love wasn't good enough. And I felt completely alone, completely alone. Yeah. So you notice that two completely different stories, two completely different circumstances, and yet the same reality it's more common than you would think. Our senior pastor, Matt, always says, never underestimate the amount of pain in a room. And so, but here's the thing. As we abide in God's truth and in his word, as we become followers of Jesus, and we know the truth, that truth sets us free. And what does freedom look like, you might ask? You know, I said freedom kind of looks like my dad and I go into the aquarium, getting dinner, talking about how much the Patriots suck. They're out of the playoffs. Yeah. (laughs) But, But here's the thing. The reason that I can do that is because that reality of my past no longer defines me. You see, when you choose to be a follower, when you choose to be the real deal, when you choose to abide in him, The truth sets you free from all other false realities that you have believed. The only reality that matters is that he has loved you. You are his child. And I want to read out of John chapter 1. Would you turn to chapter 1 with me? We'll close out our time with this. And just one last point. In John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, it says, The true light, this is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to his own people, like we read about in the story. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so based off of that, freedom is no longer being defined by what you have walked out of, or what you are walking out of, but who you are walking towards. That invitation is an invitation out of darkness and into his light. And so Tate, I just wanna wrap this up with one last question for you. What does that freedom look like for you now? Yeah, it's running toward the light. Like with everything I got, with full endurance, and you guys, I don't, it was hard for so long, and there were mornings I, w- I woke up and I wish I didn't. I, I didn't ever want to take my life, but I also wish it just stopped. But every time you're breathing, every breath you take, that's God literally putting breath in your lungs. Like he's making your body function. Our bodies are so complicated. It's such a miracle that we're all breathing in this room right now. So every time I was breathing, I knew God wanted me alive. And so I had to keep running. You know, the, the faith walk is often compared to races of endurance. And it is, it's not a sprint, it's an endurance. It's a light jog. And like, you look at me, I'm, I'm obviously not a runner, but I can run if I want to, right? I can set the pace. And so I had to start pushing harder. I had to wake up and actually read my Bible. Like, I know we talk about quiet time, but you actually have to read this. This is your bread of life. This is your nourishment. This is abiding. Being in God's word is how you abide. It's how you get through your day. And when I read this, oftentimes it was like, cool, so Joseph got thrown in a pit. Like, how does that, what does that have to do with me, right? But it was just, 
No, Joseph was in a pit and I felt like I was in a pit, okay? So there are parts of it that were connecting with me and, and it was that continual, it was showing up to serve. If you're struggling, if you're in a dark place, like ask how you can help somebody else because that gets the attention and focus off yourself and puts it onto others, right? It puts it onto God. So I kept serving. Um, it looked like being honest with my friends and telling them like, I'm alone and I need you to come hang out with me. Like, I can't be alone tonight. And um, for that, it might look like telling your parents that or telling your sibling or telling your leader. Um, it looks like praying and fasting. Um, it looked like also just listening to praise worship. I had to stop listening to like Neo songs about him wanting this girl or whatever, like all the R&B hip hop songs because they're all love songs and I had to cut that out and I had to just listen to worship music for a while. And um, it also looked like just being okay, not being okay. It looked like crying. You can ask Joshua, I probably cried every single day for like a good two years at work, but that's just, it's okay. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to cry. Um, and I don't know, it just looks like not giving up. You know, it looks like not giving up. Like I said, every day that you wake up, it's a new day to start over and try again. And so I wasn't perfect. I struggled with sin in it. Um, I wasn't saying that I was a perfect wife and I had nothing to do with any of that. But um, it looks like knowing that his new mercies are new every morning and his steadfast love is new every morning for you and it's not going to run out. So you got to keep going. Life's going to get hard. It's going to be messy. Walking with Jesus doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it's worth it. And Austin and I are living proof of that it's worth it because we literally wouldn't be up here without Jesus. Um, there's just no way. So, yeah. I pray for us real quick. Jesus. We thank you that you come to us in our darkness and you say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Father, we thank you that you make that identity statement, that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you reveal to us the realities of sin and darkness, the realities of of ourselves, the false realities that we believe. And Father, I thank you that you give us that invitation, the invitation to know you, the invitation to abide in you, to come back home to that place in our hearts. Father, I pray that these students, these young men and women would abide in you, that they would make you the home of their hearts because you have made your home in their hearts. So, Father, shine your light. Show us the ugliness of our sin, the ugliness of what we have believed about ourselves. Help us to know the truth. Help that truth to set us free and to be free, to know that we are not defined by the realities of what we have walked out of, but who we are walking to. We thank you for being our light. Calvary Monterey's youth ministries meet on Tuesday nights at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Monterey. Both middle school and high school students are welcome. Come on out. You belong here. And I promise, we don't bite. <laughs>